Good morning. Uh, my name is Dodds. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, really glad, honored to be with you all this morning. Um, last week, we started a sermon series uh, titled Christ of the Covenants, and we are looking at the major covenants God made in the Bible uh, and tracing the successive waves of grace uh, in each covenant, waves of God's grace in each covenant. And it's meant to be a thematic series with thematic sermons. And so most often what we do is we preach line by line through a passage of the book of the Bible. And the benefit of that approach is that week by week we get to learn how to open a passage, how to read it, how to interpret it, how to imply it to our lives. Uh, but this isn't the only way to read the Bible. Um, there's also a thematic reading where we take a theme and we see how it relates to Christ so that we can view the story of the Bible, of the whole Bible, more clearly. So when we say successive waves of God's grace, this is what we mean. Picture yourself standing on a beach, ankle, ankle deep in the water, and the first wave comes in, and it's Adam. And then another wave comes in, and it's Noah. A third wave comes in, it's Abraham. Fourth, Moses. Fifth, David. And then the, wa the waves stop, the waters recede, and these, uh, all of a sudden on the horizon, this tidal wave comes, which is the, the new covenant coming, and it crashes in. And these successive waves forming one rising tide, this is how we see the covenants of the Bible as successive covenants forming one rising tide. So let's begin this way. When I was, when I was 10, my parents separated, and my father moved to Los Angeles, and I stayed in Houston with my mom. And I remember very vividly coming home uh, that day that, that dad left, and, um, and I remember looking at his sink, and it was completely cleared, completely cleared off. Um, and I had this rush of overwhelming fear and worry and these questions that just were flying across my mind of, are we going to be okay? Am I going to be okay? Um, and in a moment when everything was swirling, I really, really needed a place, a safe place amidst the uncertainty. Now, in the immediate, it was my mom. And I latched onto her very tightly, which is why for me, leaving for college was like voluntarily drowning. <laughs> but I'd suspect that you're not much different than me. Um, you're counting on things and people for security, too. And to let go of them would feel most certainly like death. Our text today deals with Noah and his family, and I trust that will give us some greater understanding specifically into who God is and therefore who we are. So let's start in, in, uh, in chapter 6, verse 5. Um, it reads like this. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. I did some theater work in high school and college, and I remember whenever we would miss a line or miss a cue mess up our blocking, go upstage when we should have gone downstage. And I remember the director comes in and goes, cut, cut, cut. Okay, we, we need to start all over again. So 
God in this scenario is that same director. The actors have gone off script, and he comes in, he yells, cut, calls for a whole new set of actors, explains the vision and the purpose again, and then famously saying, okay, people, once again, from the top, right? With feeling, right? (laughs) So what we get in the beginning of chapter 6 is really a grand view of sin's presence and effect in Adam's world. Adam and Eve, the first two human beings, desired to be like God, and as a result of their rebellion, their sin has tainted everything in the world. So it's had a total effect on the pristine, unfallen world that God has created. How many people have seen the movie Noah? Are there any brave people? Bless you. Bless you. The Lord will redeem that. Um, there's a great, there is a great amount of liberty taken in that film, obviously, but the, de- but the depiction of the world at the time seems to kind of appropriate verse 5. Like, we're talking complete and total social, relational, creational chaos. So there's rampant murder and rampant rape and rampant theft and violence, and it's, it's every person for themselves. So this is, this is terrible. This, is, this cataclysmic event of sin has actually broken every relationship, man and woman and God, man and woman and, the, and one another, man and woman and creation, man and woman, and even within their own selves, everything is broken. And God looks at it, and it says here, the author of, the author of Genesis, Moses, says that it grieved God to his heart. And I think that's something that's incredible, that God the creator has a heart, and that he can be grieved. See, God isn't a force. He's not emotionless. He's not removed. He has desires, and he he can can experience sorrow. This is like any, uh, unlike any other God of any other religion, because most of the time in other religions, God is either completely and totally powerful and so other that there's no personal, or so personal so here and so present that they have no power. This is the creator of all things grieving to his heart over his creation. And in his sorrow and regret, he decides to punish the wickedness of man. It's really important that we not view God as like a cartoonist, like at a drafting table, and he just goes, okay, that was terrible. He's not just wadding up a piece of paper and starting over. No, this is a this is a culmination of wickedness within creation. Man, man's actions and his heart are in complete disarray. And God's response is to recognize it as sin and deem that justice and righteousness demand judgment. He sees it and he cannot allow it to continue. We're going to talk about that a little bit later. Let's talk about Noah. Okay, so Noah, one man found favor with God, Noah. Chapter six, verse nine says that he was righteous, blameless, and that he walked with God. So this, he was righteous. He was right with God and right with man. So there was an internal integrity within his own, within his own person, and there was integrity with him and the creator. The author of, well, Peter, uh, will say in his New Testament letter that, that Noah was the herald of righteousness. 
Now, the word blameless, this is very important because the word blameless, we could read that and move on and go, man, he didn't do anything wrong. But the word blameless in the Hebrew is actually more accurately translated as wholehearted. This means that Noah wasn't divided in his affections. He was committed to God, wholehearted. And the picture of Noah walking with God, that just speaks to his intimacy with God. He was living in communion, close, intimate relationship. Nowhere else in these early chapters does anyone else get that label. So Noah, we can see that Noah is living in just stark contrast to the rest of the world. There is the world and there's Noah. And out of this relationship, God instructs Noah to build a boat because he, God, is going to bring destruction to the earth, which seems strange because he doesn't tell Noah that it's going to be a flood. He says, I'm going to destroy the earth with the earth. Build a boat. Is that going to help? You know, like, I mean, really, like, I think Noah have a little anxiety, like, it's a boat. You're going to blow everything up. The boat isn't going to help. But Noah doesn't know why. Okay, so, so why the flood and why the ark? In the beginning, God brought the earth from the water and made order from chaos. Creation, creation was a cataclysmic event. But now God is reversing creation in light of all man's wickedness that he can't ignore. So this is an undoing of everything. This is a decreation. In essence, still a cataclysmic event, and it lasted for over a year. So the way it's described in chapter 7 is that just water bursts forth from the deep and comes down from above. So God brings the waters that he separated back together. So order with Adam, chaos again with the flood. So water again covers the earth, and now in all the world, it's the chaos rules again, except in the ark. Inside the ark, everything is preserved. So God puts Noah, his family, and a horde of animals inside this, this glorious remnant, these eight people and a bunch of animals and food. And really, just to, just to continue what we opened with, like it's important for Noah in this story to be preserved, but that's important for us today too. Like we're not removed from this. There hasn't been a lot of evolution in the human heart. Yeah, there's been great advances in technology, but the world is still wicked and our hearts are still dark. So we're all huge proponents of safety and preservation. I mean, we obsess over diet, some of us. Um, we hoard money. We avoid harmful relationships. We're concerned for our health, our friendships, our romantic relationships, the future, our savings accounts. I mean, if we're parents, we're already concerned for our kids in this world. We're concerned for our kids in the park, right? We wear seatbelts. We worry about the speed limit. We buy life insurance. Like, we, we buy firearms. I mean, I remember I was a banker uh, uh, not too long ago, and in 2008, uh, I had a I had a couple of customers come in and they cleared out all their accounts because they said that they were moving to Colorado, they were buying land, a shack, and a shotgun because Obama was going to upend the world. So they were a little batty. <laughs> but I think that we understand, I think that we're worried too. 
then we're all hedging our bets to a certain extent to protect and insulate ourselves because we want to be preserved. So we're not different. And what God says to Noah is what he says to us. He gives Noah a promise and a boat. Let's unpack that a little bit. For last week, Brandon defined covenant for us. It's a binding relationship with promises and conditions. Now, this is not a new covenant. That's very important. The language here indicates that this relationship is already existing. Let's look at Genesis 6.18. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. So see, through this promise, God isn't initiating a new covenant with Noah. He's confirming the already existing covenant. This isn't just a general relationship, but an intimate relationship. He's extending this personal covenant through Noah. Consider God's words in this verse. I will establish my covenant with you. It speaks to God's gracious initiative. It's something that he does. Noah didn't ask for the covenant. He didn't earn it. He didn't earn the pardon. He didn't earn the preservation. His righteousness didn't cause God's grace. God's grace resulted in Noah's righteousness. So the text says that God's favor found Noah. It wasn't the other way around. He chose Noah because he's gracious, not because Noah's amazing. He didn't look at the world and, be, and say, well, Noah, Noah's better, so I can't kill him. I've got to save him. No, that's not true. Because that's the nature of God's grace. It always falls upon those who don't deserve it. A covenant functions, and this is huge, a covenant functions to assure us of this, the certainty of the promises of God. When you think covenant, think simply God does what he says. In other words, God, God's word is as good as done. So we should not forget amidst all of this, the promises and conditions the blessings and commands, they are very much a part of this binding, intimate covenant relationship between God and Noah. For instance, we see in Noah's world and we see God extending this, in, this intimate relationship of grace and favor with Noah and his family. But that promise is offered in the context of a command for Noah to do something, specifically to build an ark, to stock it with food, and to load it up with animals. And this mutual self-giving relationship where both parties win, we see God's desire and intention to spread his glory through the earth, and Noah gets to live out of the reality of how full life was meant to be lived in obedience to God's commands. This was the covenant that God was entering into with Noah, and in it were many, many glorious promises from God himself. First, first, promises. There is a particular redemption that God promises. Out of thousands of people, maybe millions, Noah and his family are saved. And this, in particular, expands our understanding of covenant because what this means is that God's covenant isn't just a binding relationship. It's also a binding salvific relationship. It is a saving relationship, a preserving relationship. And perhaps many of us are going to look at that and say, so out of millions of people, God saved eight. That's not fair. It's, it, 
natural human reaction. I don't think any of us enjoy watching justice carried out severely and swiftly. Perhaps we look at this and say, come on, God only saved eight? It was this little family out of millions of people. That's not fair. But when we consider Genesis 6 and all the evil described, really we don't have a lot of room to complain about fairness. In fact, we should wonder why he showed any mercy at all. He would be absolutely just to wipe out everyone. And this judgment demonstrates that God's truth holds without respect to the majority. See, God doesn't look at the majority and say, well, this is what I've got to deal with. He looks at himself and says, this will not stand in my presence. With God, the truth of a situation always prevails, regardless of the majority or the minority. Always. Now, without understanding how awful sin and wickedness are, we cannot understand justice. It's only when we see sin as inherently deserving of justice that we can actually not only cope with God's action, but that we can look at it and consider sin broke the harmony of all creation. It absolutely deserves to be punished if that's what it did, if that's how serious it is. There's a small illustration called uh, Anselm's Dialogue in a book called Why Did God Become Man? And Anselm is the teacher in this particular story, and one of his students, unfortunately named Bozo, um, feels like he set him up, uh, says, so th- this, this student says, he, he considers this story, and he says, well, how can that be? You know that that's not fair. Everyone knows that's not fair. And Anselm says, I see. You have, you have not rightly understood sin. So fundamental to our objections to fairness and God's justice is our right comprehension on biblical teaching about sin. When we see sin for what it is, damnable rebellion against God that broke creation at every level, then we can see God's judgment as warranted and right. But it's in Noah that God shows his rich, unmerited favor because it's pure grace. It's not unfair that he killed millions. It's gracious that he saved any. Secondly, there's a common grace. There's a particular grace. There's a common grace that God shows through his covenant. Let's look at what God said after the flood in 8.22, chapter 8, 20, verse 22 of Genesis. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, shall not cease. So God, after the flood, reestablishes order. So we went from chaos to order in creation, order to chaos in sin, and now the chaos of the flood gives way back to order. So he promises to preserve and order a regularity, seasons, times of the year. I was considering that maybe that means that the fact that in Houston we only have summer is God's grace to us. Don't trust me. Trust the text. 
This is an amazing promise of God, though, because according to Genesis, it was our sin that brought chaos into the world. But God's promise is that he will preserve the world even as sin still exists. He's saying, I won't let sin destroy or unravel my covenant. I will hold it. I will preserve it. This promise to preserve and to save also has a universalistic dimension, and I'll, I'll explain that. It means that God's covenant tells us about what to expect in the future. It doesn't mean that God will save every single person in the world because he, he, killed, he killed millions of people in the flood. But it does mean that from every tribe, nation, and tongue across the globe and across time, God will save. And it will include, this is very important because we can forget about this, it will include a renovation of creation itself. All non-human creation will be made new, completely. Trees, animals, planets, stars, comets, all of it. New and remade. God's promise is utterly gracious and generous. That's why the rainbow is so important after the flood. The rainbow reminds us of the right judgment that took place, but also of the grace and mercy that Noah and his family received. It means that God forever will view his covenant people through a rainbow, through grace, and that he will preserve us forever. Now, since the covenant relationship was pre-existing through Adam, what we see are God's original ordinances to Adam reaffirmed in Noah. So God is calling Noah, just like Adam, to stand in the place of humankind. So he calls Noah into the life of three main relationships, with the earth, with all other people, and with himself, the creator. Let's look at, let's look at Genesis 9, verses 1 through 3. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth. Kind of an insight on why animals are afraid of us. And upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea, into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. So God's command to be fruitful and to multiply, it's just, it, this is an echo of the exact words of the creation ordinance given to Adam. So just like Adam, God commands Noah to fill the earth with his image bearers. Fill the earth with my glory. Fill the earth with my creation. Make it look like Eden. But God also commands Noah to subdue the earth and to take the ordered place of authority over all the animals. This is the same kind of dominion language from Genesis 1 where God makes Adam to be over the created order. And Noah's very name, according to Genesis 5, reflects rest, the ordinance of rest in creation. Lamech, his, Noah's father, named him Noah, saying, this one shall give us rest from our work and from the toil of our hands. So even Noah's name is, a, is sort of almost a commissioning to go and create rest. But right after they're exiting the ark, right after God reiterates his covenant with Noah, something gets twisted. Let's look at Genesis 9, 20 and 21. Noah began to be a man of the soil. He's getting out there. 
He's creating. He's joining the, the created order in working the land and toiling, just how God called to go and multiply, go produce. And he planted a vineyard, drank the wine, and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. Noah, commanded to subdue creation, is subdued by creation. And just like Adam and Eve took the fruit of the tree improperly, Noah now improperly partakes of the vineyard. And as Adam and Eve became drunk on their own rebellion and ended up naked and ashamed in the garden, Noah becomes drunk on wine, ends up naked and ashamed in a tent. And he brings, if I could just say this, he brings a warped sense of rest through overindulgence and drunkenness. I think that a lot of us can, can relate to that, that if, if we have that extra beer, that extra glass of wine, it sort of simulates rest of, ah, that's peace. But it's a warped sense of peace. So Noah fails as he follows in the footsteps of his father, Adam. Now, Noah was wholehearted, but his contemporaries were left to ask this question. Will we ever have a faithful representative? And we're no different. All we can hope for as humans, all that we could hope for as humans, is to be called like Noah, to be blameless, righteous, and an intimate knower of God. I mean, if that could be said about us, I say we're set. But even though Noah was all of that, it was only because of God's grace that he was saved. So maybe we're wondering this. Is God's grace real? And how do I get it? Where is it? Let's look at 1 Peter. 1 Peter 3, starting in 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, this ark and this story, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Peter is saying that the story of Noah and the ark correspond to baptism. And the only reason it can has to do with the baptism of Jesus underneath the flood of God's wrath. Let's look at Mark 10. Verse 38, the disciples are sort of jockeying for position. They want to know who's going to sit like in the place of significance with Jesus in the kingdom. And he says this, Jesus said to the disciples, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism which I am baptized? Do you see what Jesus is saying? When he was crucified on the cross, he was being baptized into the wrath of God, drowned in a flood of God's wrath and judgment so that he could become the ark who preserves and saves everyone who is in him. Do you see what he's undoing? 
On the cross, Jesus was stripped naked and shamed like Noah and like Adam so that anyone who comes to trust him will only be clothed with righteousness. See, in Noah's flood, one family was saved while many were destroyed. On the cross, one man was destroyed so that many families would be saved. The people cry, will we ever have a faithful representative? It is Jesus who is the faithful one of God. And not only does he sustain us while sin is still present, but he will sustain us when God's wrath returns as fire on the day of judgment. It came first as water, it's coming again as fire, but in Christ we will be preserved. And you know why we can trust that? Because of the, because of the rainbow. The Hebrew word isn't actually rainbow, it's translated warbow. Dustin, will you put the the slide up? You see how it's a bow? Aimed at God himself. Because the wrath of God did not fall on us in Christ, it fell on Christ. God laid down his bow in the sky to say that he would never destroy the world with water again, but that did not mean that he ceased to be a God of wrath. Now, see, on the cross, the storm of God's justice and the sun of God's love met, and that's why we get a rainbow. Rainbows don't come on sunny days. They come when sun and storm meet. And this thing of beauty is a sign of the gospel of God, the saving gospel of God. Now, grace of God the Father is freely given through the one who did not fail God's commands. See, the director saw the cross and didn't say cut. He said, it is finished. The masterpiece is done. So, Sojourn, as, we, as I close, it's a good question to ask, what does that mean for us today? How do we now live? See, in Christ, we can live as the people of God, the body of Christ, and we can invite others into the safety and preservation of the ark. It means that God only views us through grace. It means that we are freed from the constant dog peddling of trying to make it on our own in the world. It means that we can let go of our mothers. We can let go of our life insurance policies. We can let go of protecting our children from everything in order to secure some kind of hope because on the cross, it has been secured for us. It means that if you're not a member of a neighborhood parish and maybe this is your first visit or your 20th, we are inviting you and we are saying, please step into a parish, step into the ark. Or maybe you think that covenant membership isn't important, and I would just tell you that covenant membership, that church membership matters because the church is the body of Christ. We are the extension of Christ who is the head, and there is no biblical precedent in the entirety of Scripture for individual Christianity. It's just not in the Bible. You are swimming around in the water alone, 
And the invitation is, get in the ark. Get in the ark. There's food, there's life, there's relationship, there's love, there's community, there's spiritual care, there's safety. It also means that parish multiplication matters because we talk about it, that there are men and women all around us who don't know even that the ark exists and they're swimming around in the flood of life, not aware that nearby there is an ark where all that Christ is is available to them. It means every neighborhood parish is like a little ark. And it means that we are a people marked by hope, marked by the rainbow, a sign of his gospel. Rainbows come where the storm and sun meet, and the grace of God cannot be seen outside the judgment of God. As the radiant light and glow of the sun shines through, both storm and sun meet in the flood, and both met on the cross. Let me pray for us. Father, you... Lord, it is a wonder to consider, Lord, your consistent pursuit of your people through extending your covenant to men and women. And that it is you who hold it together because your covenant, the covenant that you establish cannot be broken because you cannot be broken. You are not a liar. You are faithful you never fail, and so your covenant never fails. God, I pray that you would make us people not only so glad, God, for those of us who know Christ, not just so glad that we're on the ark, but that we are looking outside saying, we need to get more people in here to hear that there is a gospel of grace. There is a gospel where God actually enacted justice, that he cares about violence and sin in the world, that he is not just, that his love, love that your love is fierce. Lord, help us. We need you. Help us to see even more, God, your goodness and your grace. We love you. We thank you. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.